Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John chapter 6, verses 25 through 58. This is Jesus' discourse about he being the bread of life. The context here is in the Capernaum ministry. John doesn't talk too much about Jesus' Gal- Galilean ministry, I should say. John doesn't talk too much about it, but he kind of gives us a peek when he starts with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has returned to Capernaum, and after he returns to Capernaum, after feeding the 5,000, that many of those crowd follow him back to Capernaum. Many of them did not believe, and Jesus gives them a discourse on belief in him as the bread of life. Again, the bread of life takes off from the bread that he fed them in the five thousand in the wilderness when he fed the five thousand. There are no parallel passages, so I'll start with verses twenty-five, twenty-six, and twenty-seven in John chapter six. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, "Rabbi, when did you get here?" Now, what this is referring to is when the Jews or the people who were near Bethsaida in the wilderness, who had just been fed. The 5,000 of them who had just been fed with the miraculous multiplication of the bread and the fishes, they watched Jesus come and his disciples come in one boat. They watched that boat leave, and Jesus wasn't in the boat. And so they figured Jesus was still over there, which he was, actually. His disciples go back. But then Jesus walked on the water and came to Capernaum and left the crowd back there in Bethsaida. They get up in the morning, where is Jesus? And so... There was a boat from Tiberias that had shown up on the shore there, and they borrowed that boat. Some of them borrowed the boat and rowed their way back to Capernaum on the on the top part of the Sea of Galilee. And some of them probably walked around the top part of the Sea of Galilee, too. Obviously, 5,000 people can't get into a boat. And when they finally found him the next day, this is at Capernaum on the other side of the sea, meaning other side of the Sea of Galilee from Bethsaida. And so when they get there, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? They couldn't figure out how he got there so fast because he walked on the water. Jesus doesn't answer. He says in verse 26, Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. God the Father has set his seal of approval on Jesus because God the Father has done a lot of attesting miracles, including the changing, uh, the multiplication of the bread and the fish and the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus is referring back to the fact, hey, guys, I have my seal of approval from God, and I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man, of course, is a messianic title, which comes from Daniel 7, 13, 14, where the Son of Man inherited a kingdom from the Ancient of Days from the Father, a kingdom which will last forever. So Jesus is talking about eternal things, and he says, but you guys, you're thinking about your stomachs. You're thinking about the fact that, hey, you got something physical for me when I fed you, and you didn't have anything. You guys are still carnal. Now, a carnal reaction to Jesus' spiritual teaching is something that happens a lot. You recall the woman at the well in Samaria? She says, oh, give me some water that I don't have to go draw anymore. She's thinking about physical H2O rather than the living water that springs up to eternal life. And these people were thinking about bread, physical bread that keeps them from being hungry instead of the bread that if you eat, it will last, it will give you spiritual life eternally. So this is a typical thing. Now, why did Jesus not give a direct answer as to when did you get here? Well, John Gill speculates that Jesus did not give them a direct answer because he didn't want to satisfy their curiosity because he knew their motives weren't pure. 
I suspect they would have had trouble believing in addition to this, if Gil is right. I would say in addition to that, that if they had heard Jesus tell them that he had walked on the water, they might have had trouble believing, as we'll see later, they had trouble believing, despite the fact that they had just seen an incredible miracle. Let me read you a quote from Clark concerning the people's attitude. Quote, Though the miracle of the loaves was one of the most astonishing that ever was wrought upon earth, and though this people had, by the testimony of all their senses, the most convincing proof of its reality, yet we find many of them paid little attention to it, and regarded the omnipotent hand of God in it no farther than it went to satisfy the demands of their appetite. Most men are willing to receive temporal good from the hands of God, but there are few, very few, who are willing to receive spiritual blessings. And I'm telling you folks, that is absolutely the truth. People are hard-hearted spiritually. It doesn't matter how much you tell them how wonderful Jesus is. Well, I got something better to do. I got to make more money. Got to find me a girlfriend. Got to find me a husband. Got to be a big shot in the community. Got to find satisfaction in my life. Got to go find myself. You know, got to do all this stuff. And it's all sitting right there in front of them. If they would just look. Now, when Jesus said in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, don't work for your bread, he didn't mean quit working and be lazy. He, mean, he means don't work merely for the bread that perishes, but look for something deeper than that. Look for the bread that gives eternal life, the food, the bread that lasts for eternal life. And, of course, eternal not only means forever, it also means of a different quality, an exalted life without fire ants, without snakes, without... Leftist politicians, leftist theologians, they're not going to be around in that life which Jesus characterizes as eternal life. Verses 28 and 29, they respond, the crowd, 28. What can we do to perform the works of God, they ask. Uh, they want to do works. Now, they didn't just want to do works for miracle working purposes. They wanted to do works so they could get saved because this is typically what people think is when they think about eternal life. Jesus just mentioned eternal life to them. They think, well, what do I need to do? Especially if you're a Jew, you are a works righteous guy to the core of your being. You want to know, you want to do good works so you can get eternal life. And so they say, how can we do the works of God? The works that God's going to favor us with eternal life with. Jesus replied, verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one who is sent. And this, of course, is a verse that's quoted oftentimes by those of the Reformed persuasion. I wish it was quoted by everybody, every Christian. This is the work of God, that you believe. Belief is not a word. Well, it's the word. It's, this is the work of God. That word work could very well be in air quotes because it's used ironically. It's not really a work. It's a receiving of the work that Jesus did for you on the cross. It's just a receiving in faith. Well, that's what believe means. It means to have faith, to believe in him. And that's not really work. That's not a work. Belief is not a work. Belief is receiving the work that's already been done for you. So when he says, you want, you want to do work? Let me tell you what you need to do. You need to believe in me. That's it. You don't need to give money to the poor. You don't need to help little old ladies across the street. All those are wonderful things which you will do after you get saved. But before you get saved, you don't need to do anything to get saved because you can't do anything good enough to take care of your nasty, filthy, corrupted, corrupted putrid sin that you consist of. There's nothing you can do to get rid of that. Only Jesus' work can get rid of that. We go to verse 30 and 31. The crowd continues. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? They just saw the feeding of 5,000 in the wilderness with five loaves and some fish. That's not good enough. They got to see more. 
What are you going to perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, what they're doing here is they're saying, well, Jesus, you did a miracle, but the miracle in the Old Testament was bigger. Moses' manna miracle was bigger than your Bethsaida miracle. Now, how absurd is this? Well, the Jews had the idea that Messiah would be doing a great sign, and and, and it was a popular Jewish expectation, according to, to the NIV Study Bible, that the Messiah, when he came, he would renew the sending of the manna. So that's why they're asking about manna, because they're saying, well, you Jesus, you're claiming to be the Messiah. But now we know from our teaching, from our Jewish teachers, that the Messiah is going to send manna again. And you didn't send manna. All you did was fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. After all, Moses did a bigger sign than you, Jesus. I get this from the NIV Study Bible, John Gill and Adam Clark. This is how the people felt that Moses was greater than Jesus. Jesus had fed 5,000, but Moses had fed a whole nation. Jesus fed the people once, but Moses did it for 40 years. Jesus gave the people ordinary bread. Moses gave bread from heaven, manna. Now, why did they ask for, why did they start talking about signs from heaven again? What sign, what are you going to perform? That means what sign are you going to perform? Well, they said in verse 30, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? Why were they asking for a sign? Because Jesus said the only work that you need to do is to believe in me. Well, they're not going to believe without a sign. The Jews seek for signs, as Paul said in one of his letters. Matthew 12:39. Matthew says this, but he answered them, Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus got tired of all these un unbelief. He said, okay, you want a sign? I'll rise from the dead. Is that good enough for you? Well, here, obviously, feeding of 5,000 was not good enough for, for, the, for the people there. They're still looking for another sign. And it's ironic. They just finished seeing the feeding of the 5,000. And when they saw it, they could hardly restrain themselves from making him a king. That's one reason Jesus, I'm sure Jesus withdrew into the mountains to pray that night was to get away from them so that they could not try to make him a king. Let me read Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's comments upon their attitude. Quote, The truth seems to be that they were confounded by the novel claims which our Lord had just advanced. In proposing to make him a king, it was for far other purposes than dispensing to the world the bread of an everlasting life. In other words, when they wanted to make him a king, they wanted to make him a political messiah. They, didn't want, they couldn't see him as a spiritual king. And when he, Jesus, seemed to raise his claims even higher still by representing it as the grand work of God that they should believe on himself as his sent one, they saw very clearly that he was making a demand upon them beyond anything they were prepared to accord him and beyond all that man had ever before made. In other words, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Son of Man, the divine Messiah. And the people weren't ready for that. Well, miracle working's one thing, but being a Messiah, that's another. Hence their question, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, continue, what dost thou work? In other words, what sign are you going to do for us? Now, it could be the fact that Jesus had disappeared on them the night before, after he had fed them. That might have cooled their ardor a little bit. This is my idea. They were trying to make him a Messiah, and he disappears. Hey, what's, 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 what's with you? Are you really the Messiah? the Messiah? Why are you running from us? Verses 32 and 33 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. Jesus now proceeds to point out to them that Moses' miracle was not greater than his miracles. Verse 33, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, here's what Moses didn't do. Jesus said Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. 
Now that, well, first of all, there's some options as to what Jesus meant by that. Moses didn't give you the physical bread from heaven. It was God who ultimately did that, and Moses was just the mouthpiece, just the agent, not the principal. Uh, yeah, it could be that. The NFA study Bible says it's that, but I don't think that's right. I think that what it is is that Moses didn't give you the spiritual bread from heaven that I'm about to give you. He didn't give you eternal life. He didn't feed you eternally spiritually. He just fed you physically temporarily. In my opinion, that's what he's saying. My father gives you the real bread from heaven, Jesus said. Real bread. This is one more, one more way Jesus is superior to Moses. God gave physical bread through Moses, but God gave spiritual bread through Jesus. Verse 33, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is saying, look, Moses gave you manna. I am manna. I am the bread of God who came down from the world. What's better? That temporary manna that the people ate in the wilderness or me. If you, and later on he's going to say, if you'll eat me, eat me, the manna that comes from heaven, you're not going to live spiritually, physically, for a short time. You're going to live eternally for a long time. And Jesus said, this manna, this bread that comes down from heaven gives life to the world. That does not mean to everyone individually in the world, of course, because you have to believe in Jesus and some people don't and go to hell. But what it means is he gives life to the world without distinction. Anybody in the world, regardless of what category they're in, Jew, Gentile, Mongolian, whatever. Now notice the present tense there. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's in the process of giving life. The NIV Study Bible says this present tense is important. Moses gave physical bread from heaven, but he's not doing it now. But God is still giving Jesus as the true bread. It is ongoing. It hasn't stopped. We go to verse 34 and 35 of John 6. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. They got excited about that. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Again, he, the bread that comes down from heaven is Jesus. He said that in the previous verse. The one who comes down from heaven, that's, of course, him. He's referring to himself. And now he makes it more explicit in verse 35. I am the bread of life. In other words, you eat me, you'll live forever. So they ask for bread. He says, yeah, you want bread? Here I am. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. That's similar to what he told the Samaritan woman in John 4. You drink water, everlasting water that springs up from eternal life, you'll never be thirsty. And here he says, you eat the, ma the manna that comes from heaven, i.e. me, you're never going to be hungry again if you partake of me. Now when he said... Well, first of all, let's talk about when, let's talk about what did the crowd mean when they say, "Sir, give us this bread always." Now, the, I believe that the crowd was asking for spiritual life. I think I'm not dead sure. Give us this spiritual life, this, this bread that you're talking about always. The NIV Study Bible, however, says the crowd is still thinking carnally and says, "Give us bread always, so we don't ever have to go earn our money to buy bread again. Just, we got free bread, free food." The crowd. And then I've studied Bible says the crowd probably misunderstood Jesus asking for physical bread. Mm, yeah, mm, mm, I don't think so. I think now they've gotten that Jesus has started explaining to them well enough that, hey, you want bread? Look at me. Now, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am, of course, uh, Yahweh means I am in the, in the Hebrew. I am. And we know, of course, the famous places, time when the burning bush, when he revealed himself to Moses, he says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Jesus does the same thing. Thus, directly identifying himself with the Father. He's already done that in chapter 5. He said, the Father gives life, I give life. The Father resurrects, I resurrect. The Father judges, but he doesn't judge alone without me. The Father does works, I do works of the Father. And now he's going to start, to, and he also said about the, the, the will of the Father. Well, whatever the Father wills, I will. All that's in chapter 5. 
Here in chapter 6, John starts talking about I am, which of course is Yahweh, I am. He identifies himself with Yahweh. Let me, this is seven times he does that in John. Let me read them to you. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am. John 10, 7. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. And then in verse 9, John 10. I am the door. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. John 11:25 I am the resurrection and the life. John 14:6 I am the way the truth and the life. John 15:1 I am the true vine. So Jesus is doing his best to teach these people to get away from their carnal conceptions of bread and look at life, eternal life and the Messiah, the true manna that comes down from heaven, the true bread. John 6:36 through 37. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. And Jesus continues, look, you're looking right at your answer right here. You want to know what this bread is, and how can you? what is this bread that comes down from heaven? Well, here I am, better than Moses. You still don't believe. And then he says in verse 37, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. And I think what he's implying here is the, the ones that don't believe is because the Father hasn't given the ones that don't believe to me. Because if he had, they would believe. And notice... This is a good Augustinian verse here. The Father gives the Son people to believe, and then they believe. The Father gives people to the Son. The Father's initiative is first. Once that donation to the Son has been given of the individual, that one who comes to Jesus, he, of course, will not cast out. Why? Because that would be like refusing a gift from the Father. He's not going to do that. Jesus is complaining as these people have seen so much of his divinity and his divine works, but they still don't believe. This is very similar to what he told Thomas on that second resurrection Sunday night, the second Sunday night after his resurrection. John 20, verse 29, Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believed without seeing are blessed. Now, that doesn't mean he was opposed to doing signs. Jesus did signs when he, well, he helped Thomas. He stuck his hand in his sign. He showed him something. And Jesus showed these people by feeding them 5,000, feeding these 5,000 in the wilderness. So he was not opposed to showing who he was. But the more you believe in him, the more he's going to show you. It, It goes together. Because there's a lot of people who saw a lot of signs who did not believe. Jesus said the Pharisees could see somebody rise from the dead. And they still wouldn't believe. And here... Jesus said, look, you're looking right at me and all that I've done for you in the wilderness, and you still don't believe. And then he hints, maybe you weren't given to me by the Father. If you would, if you had been, you would have believed. Now, going back to this Augustinian Calvinist idea that everyone the Father gives me will come to me, let's look at the scriptures. I'm going to give you eight scriptures where it shows that God's action is primary in salvation, as the NIV Study Bible says. God's action is primary. In other words, God acts first and we respond to what he does. That's how we get saved. John 6:44, no one comes can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 10:28 through 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I give them eternal life. My Father, verse 29, who has given them to me is greater than all. No one would be able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. My Father gave them to me. He was the one that took action first, not our belief. That did not come first. John 17:6. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. I have revealed your Jesus' name to the men. Talking about God. This is the high priest of the prayer. I have revealed your name, Jesus, to the men 
excuse me, this is Jesus, I have revealed your God the Father's name to the men you, God the Father, gave me, Jesus, from the world. They were yours, Father. You, Father, gave them to me, the Son, and they have kept your word. So the Father gave believers to the Son, and it was the Father who, who initiated the action. John 17:9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. I pray for those you, Father, have given me the Son, because they are yours. John 17:12. When I was with them, I was protecting them by your name, the Father, by your, the Father's name, that you, the Father, have given me the Son. The Father has given the believers to the Son. John 17:15. I'm not praying that you, the Father, take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's, that verse doesn't really hit the spot like the other ones do. John 17:19. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So the truth sanctifies the believer. John 18:19. Well, that verse doesn't fit what I'm trying to say. I said that must be a mistake. We'll leave that one out. Well, I gave you plenty of verses that show that salvation is initiated by the Father, not by our belief. Now, it's true that we do believe but it's only after the Father initiates us. To put it in good tulip terminology, irresistible grace, the I in tulip means that the Holy Spirit comes and draws us by regenerating us and then gets rid of our nasty sin and says, boom, I want you. And then we wake up from our spiritual slumber and we respond to God's uh, work of the Holy Spirit, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit, and we say, yes, I believe. So you do have belief, but it's the Holy Spirit who moves first because... The Holy Spirit is the agent of agent of God the Father who is the initiator in salvation. Let's go to John 6, verses 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now here Jesus identifies himself closely with the will of the Father. As I said in the last chapter, he did the same thing. Whatever the Father wants, I want. Father raises up people, I raise up people. The Father gives life, I give life. The Father does works, I do works. And now he identifies himself once again with the will of the Father. And, and the, but the particular aspect of the will that he's identifying himself with is the Father doesn't want to lose anybody that he's given Jesus. And so that's my will too. I'm carrying out the will of the Father. I ain't going to lose. I'm not going to lose anybody the Father's given me. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus came to do that will, that the believer will be raised up on the last day. And verse 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, the Son, that I, the Son, should lose none of those he has given me. So Jesus is doing the Father's will that he should lose none of those that the Father has chosen for salvation and who is given to the Son for salvation. This, of course, is the Calvinist favorite, one of the Calvinist favorite chapter, ranks right up there with Romans 9. You know the chapters that the Armenians always like to avoid. This is so clear, folks. When he says, I came down from heaven, of course, this is uh, referring to the manna that came down from heaven. Jesus is saying he's the true manna, the true bread. He repeats that phrase, by the way, six times in this in this uh, chapter, John 6:33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven, John 6:38. I have come down from heaven, John 6:41. They started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, John 6:50-51. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, John 6:58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your fathers ate. 
So you see, what Jesus is trying to do is make the parallel between Moses' manna and Jesus' son, the bread of life. Now, let me once again make a point about verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none. This is the will of him, the Father, who sent me the Son, that I, the Son, should lose none of those that he, the Father, has given me the Son, but should raise them up on the last day. Lose none? How are you going to lose your salvation? Well, I know that not all Armenians think that you can lose your salvation. They're really wussy-pussy about it. They just, If you read Roger Olson, for example, in his one of his great Armenian books, he says, well, he's just not going to take a stand on that issue. Folks, listen. How can you get around what this verse says? I'm go Jesus says, I'm not going to lose anybody that the Father's given me. Well, I've found an Armenian, Adam Clark, one of my main commentators. He objects to the Calvinist interpretation of this verse. Now, I want you to listen to this and see if this makes any sense to you. And the question is, is how can God lose none of those that he's been given by? The, how can Jesus lose none of those who he's been given to by the Father? Clark says this, God may will a thing to be without willing that it shall be. You got that? God may will a thing to be without willing that it shall be. Folks, that is double talk. That is absolute nonsense. It is incomprehensible. And that's why Armenians have to start when they talk about this verse. All right, so this is how Armenian, uh, this is how Clark the Armenian goes on to try to show that God can actually lose, that Jesus can lose one that's been given to him, despite the fact that Jesus said, I should lose, the will of the Father is that I should lose none of those who has given me. This is what he says. Judas was given to Christ by the Father in John 17, 12. Let me read John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name. While I, Jesus, was with them, the apostles, I, Jesus, was protecting them, the apostles, by your the Father's name that you the Father have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And so it says here that G Judas was saved, according to Adam Clark, Judas was saved, and Judas was lost. So therefore, J Jesus lost someone who was given to him, despite the fact that this verse says here in John 6 that it is not the will of God the Father that anybody be lost once he has given that person to Jesus. So let me go on with Clark's quote. The Father willed that this Judas should continue in the faith and have a resurrection unto life eternal. But Judas sinned and perished. Now it is evident that God willed that Judas might be saved without willing that he must be saved infallibly and unconditionally. In other words, God wanted it, but he didn't get what he wanted. And of course, this is the, goes to the same argument. It is not God's will that anyone be, saved, that anyone be lost. And how do you get around that? And I realize that's a difficult problem. But this is how Clark answers this, answers this. When a man is a worker together with the grace of God, he is saved. I don't believe Judas was saved, not for a minute. But Clark thinks he is. When he receives that grace of God in vain, he is lost. Not through a lack of will or mercy in God, but through lack of his cooperation with divine grace. Oh, we Arminians are not synergists, are we? Lack of cooperation with divine grace? Judas wasn't saved. He was the son of perdition. He was not saved. He was never saved. But Clark says he was saved and he was lost. He lost his salvation. I just go to show you to what lengths Armenians will go to avoid the plain teaching of the scripture. Now I realize there are other verses that are hard for Calvinists. I understand that. But we're not talking about those right now. We're talking about this verse and how an Armenian deals with it. I think if you could say to take the easier Armenian verse, it's not God's will for any to perish but that all should have everlasting life. The easiest way to say that, I think, and I realize Calvinists disagree on this, 
as I like the analogy of the father who is told that his son has committed murder and the cops have got him. They turn him over to the courts. They try him. He's about to be executed. The father doesn't want, in an emotional sense, his son to be saved, but he knows that justice has to be served. So he wills in the sense that his son die in in a justice sense, but in an emotional sense, he doesn't like it. He doesn't, of course, he doesn't like it. And so well, the way you would interpret that, Jesus, God, the Father, does not have an emotional desire for people to, to get lost. But however, for the sake of his justice, sometimes people are lost. All right, so I gave a little bit of support for the Armenian cause, which I don't believe for a minute. But this phrase, last day, is used a lot. I'm going to show you when I get there about, I think it's six times in this chapter. It's the only time this expression is used in the New Testament. And here it is in John 6. I'll raise him up on the last day. I'll raise him up on the last day. The Jews believe that the wicked should have no resurrection. So Jesus is saying, Ah, no, you're going to be righteous because you're going to be raised up on the last day. And, by the way, this is a physical resurrection because in John 5 it says the physical bodies were in the tomb and they're going to be empty. The tombs are going to be empty. I say this for the sake of any heretical hyperproterist who might unfortunately be listening to me at this time. It is a heresy to say that Christians are not raised up on the last day. It's in the Apostles' Creed, it's in the Nicene Creed, and if you don't like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, read John 6, 38-40. I will raise him up on the last day. Please. We go now to John 6, verses 41 and 42. Therefore the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom father, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? In other words, how can he say he's God? He's just the son of a carpenter. They were they were referring to Joseph, Joseph's low status as a carpenter. Now, you would think that they might have considered all the great miracles that re- Jesus had recently done. I mean, after all, who cares whether a miracle worker has a carpenter for a father or not? What difference does it make? But no, they're going to point to his lowly origins. They can't conceive of God or the Messiah being such a, a, a lowly person. We might ask, how did the Jews in Capernaum, where they are now, how did they know Joseph who lived in Nazareth? Well, remember, Nazareth is not far from Capernaum. They're close to each other. I'm sure Joseph could have done work for people in Capernaum. John 6, verses 43 through 44. Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves. In other words, stop complaining about whether I'm the Messiah or not. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ah, another famous Calvinist verse here, verse chapter 6, verse 44. But we don't often look at the context of it. Why did Jesus say that? You're not going to come to the Father unless the Father draw you. It's because he's trying to explain to them the reason you don't believe because you haven't been chosen by your Father. Now think about that. We don't often think that way. We say you don't believe because you're a jerk or because you're hard-hearted or because you're callous. Well, of course, which is true. But the real reason, the ultimate reason is because you haven't come. So if you're witnessing to people and they give you a hard time and there are lots of such people, just remember it's because the Father hasn't drawn them or at least he hasn't drawn them yet at the time you're witnessing to them. He could very well have they could come later and then they would be of course drawn then but at the time you don't get upset when you find people that don't believe as the NIV study bible here says referring to verse 44 no one comes to Christ on his own initiative really John Gill the Calvinist says this they had neither power nor will of themselves being dead in trespasses and sins and impotent to everything that is spiritual and whilst men are in a state of unregeneracy blindness and darkness 
they see no need of coming to Christ, nor anything in him worth coming for. That's right. It's called total depravity. And, of course, we need to look at this word, draws. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I have a friend, a Calvinist friend, who always translate, who always reads that verse this way. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. <laughs> well, that is one meaning of the word, to drag. The Arminians think that that translation is too strong. Here's a quote from the Arminian Adam Clark. Drawing or alluring, not dragging, is here to be understood. The best Greek writers use the verb in the same sense of alluring, inciting, etc. So God wins us, he seduces us, he attracts us to come to him. I don't think so. I'd have, I haven't really looked at the Greek to say. I imagine that I can't believe Clark would quote a Greek lexicon wrongly. And you know, a lot of times Greek words have different connotations and all. And you, it's hard to prove one thing, prove a, a, a doctrinal point from one definition of a word a lot because their semantic fields of words are sometimes large. I understand all that. But really, you might ask, okay, we'll take the Armenian definition. No one comes to the Father unless the Father allures him. Why would the Father allure one person over another person? Oh, you, the Armenian might say he allures everybody. Oh, really? And he will, and God's going to raise everybody up on the last day? I don't think so, unless you're a universalist. No. I love John 6. This is the Armenian nightmare chapter. I will raise him up on the last day. And in a little while, I'm going to read you the four verses where Jesus says, I will raise you him up on the last day. The Jews believe that righteous people would be resurrected up on the last day. And so what Jesus is saying, I can make you righteous so that you can attain to this resurrection. And again, if you're a hyperpreterist heretic, how do you deal with this? Last day obviously means the last day of the world, not 8070. Now, he says, stop complaining amongst yourselves, Jesus says in verse 43. The reason he said this is because the whole of his discourse went to prove he was infinitely greater than Moses. So stop it. Don't argue about whether I'm, I'm worthy enough to come down from heaven or to raise you up on the last day of anything like that. Just stop it. Moses couldn't do any of this. I'm greater than Moses. Well, this was hard for the Jews because they loved Moses so much. Now, what is the connection between verses 41 and between verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, Stop complaining, verse in 43 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That does seem kind of a strange jump there. Here's how Jameson Fawcett Brown handles that. He says, they say, quote, Be not either startled or stumbled at these sayings, for it needs divine teaching to understand them, divine drawing to submit to them. In other words, stop complaining because you don't understand verse 43 verse 44 the reason you don't understand is because you can't come to the father unless the father draws you and obviously you haven't been drawn to the by the father yet that's why you don't understand verse 45 it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by god everyone who has listened to and learned from the father comes to me now when jesus says it is written in the prophets he's referring to isaiah 54:13, which says this then all your children will be taught by the Lord. Their prosperity will be great. Now, the NIV Study Bible, John Gill, Adam Clark, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown all cite this as the verse that, John, that Jesus is referring to here. It is written in the prophets, namely in Isaiah. All your children will be taught. Well, what does it mean by taught? He's referring to the previous verse. Adam Clark says, God taught a man to know himself, to taught, that he, taught him that he needs salvation. And he's, he's, taught, he's taught him that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, all of his teaching about him being the bread of life. 
that's who Jesus is referring to when he says it. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says it is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. They'll all be taught by God about the Messiah and all the Messiah can do. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. And so what he's saying, you people are having trouble coming to me. The reason is because you don't know the Father. You Jews who claim to know Yahweh is so good, you don't know the Father. If you knew the Father, you'd be flocking to me right now instead of complaining amongst yourself and saying, my father was just a carpenter, and how can he say he comes down from heaven, and my miracles of feeding the 5,000 not as big as the feed, Moses' feeding the children of Israel in the wilderness with manna. I am in fear. I am in fear. You don't believe. You don't believe. Listen, if you believe in God the Father, you believe in me. If you understood the prophets, if you understood the scriptures, you'd believe in me. If you were taught by God by understanding the prophets, if you, were, if you had been taught by God the Father, you would believe in me. If you had listened to the Father, you would believe in me. If you had learned from the Father, you would believe in me, because if you had done all those things, you would have come to me. Gil Clark and Jameson Fawcett Brown cite another verse that Jesus might have been referring to when Jesus says in the prophets they will all be taught by God. Famous uh, Old Testament citation, Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This, of course, is quoted in Hebrews 8, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For this is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. So you want to be taught by God, it will be written on your hearts that you're forgiven forever. So that's what Jesus is kind of referring to when he says it is written in the prophets. The prophets, the reason he says, instead of saying the law, the prophets, and the writing, excuse me, the, yeah, the law, the prophets, and the writing, the typical way of referring to the Hebrew scriptures, he just says the prophets because he's quoting from Isaiah and probably Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 54, 13, and Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34. Notice that it says, everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone. If you understand what the Father says spiritually, that means the Holy Spirit has come, in, come into your life. And if you've been born again by the imperishable Word of God, you have become a new creation. No one will snatch you from His hand. <laughs> Everyone. Nothing, nobody's going to be lost. John 6, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, Jesus has just finished saying that... Everyone who has listened and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. And then he says, but, you know, I, you haven't really seen the Father. You might listen from him and learn, listen to him and learn from him, but nobody's seen the Father except me, the one who is from God, me, Jesus, the one who has been sent from God. He, Jesus, has seen the Father. John Gill says that Jesus said that, this verse, verse 46, to guard against the, his words in, in the previous couple of verses from being misconstrued. When Jesus said men should be taught of God, it should not be thought that these men would visibly see and vocally hear God. But what he meant was if you're taught from God, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, it means that believers would have immediate, direct, and naked access to the Father like Jesus does. Does It's not that you're going to see him with your eyeballs or hear him with your ear, ears, but you're going to be taught of him, understand who he is, and you're going to come to Jesus. John 6:46 to repeat the, what I just said there. Not that anyone has seen physically the Father. That's what he's saying. Nobody's seen the Father. But I have seen, I shouldn't say physically because you can't see God physically because he's a spirit. But no one has directly seen the Father because no one is in heaven to see the Father except Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son. 
So don't get the wrong eye when I wrong idea when I say you're going to be taught by God the Father. Doesn't mean you're going to see Him like I saw Him in heaven, but it does mean you're going to know Me. And what He's saying is you don't directly see God the Father. You see God the Father through the Son. You see Jesus, and once you know the Son, then you'll know God the Father. John 6, verses 47 through 51. I assure you, and the reason he says I assure you is because he wants to stop the arguments, the complaining. How can this man say he comes down from heaven if he just has Joseph for his father? Jesus says, I assure you, in verse 47, anyone who believes has eternal life. Remember, this is the work of God to believe. That's all you got to do. Now, in other places in the scripture, it says repentance, believe in repentance, and so they both go together. But right here is just talking about belief. And belief means to trust in. It's the direct synonym for to trust in. Anyone who believes, i.e. believes in Jesus, has eternal life, life everlasting. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna of the wilderness and they died. Now Jesus once again returns to the theme of how he's greater than Moses' manna. I am the bread of life. Moses' manna is manna, but I am the bread which gives life, eternal life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. Mean This meaning Jesus, this me. So when he says this, he's referring to himself. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. The, the, Moses' people ate manna and they did die, but you eat Jesus, you will live. Verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Notice the adjective, living bread. I am the bread that gives life. You eat bread that's made out of flour, that, you don't call that living bread. It gives you life temporarily, physical life, but not eternal spiritual life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, when it says eats of this bread, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Of course, that means believing in Jesus. That's a metaphor, uh, eating, eating Jesus is a metaphor, which we're going to look at a little closer in the next few verses. Notice that the bread that I will give for the life of this, this world, that's referring to when he gave his body. His body is the bread that he gave for the life of the world. He put his body up on the cross so that we all might eat of his body, that we might believe in him because of his sacrificial death on the cross, that we might live forever. And by the way, this sound, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You eat the flesh. That sounds a little bit like the Lord's Supper. It turns out theologians love to argue over whether Jesus is referring to the Lord's Supper here and in the next few verses. In my opinion, he does not. I've got plenty of people that back me up on that, so I don't feel out on a limb by saying that. First John chapter 6, verse 52. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And we, once again, looking at things materially, not understanding Jesus's spirit, the spiritual import of Jesus' words. <laughs> so when they were arguing among themselves, that shows that some people did believe Jesus that he was the Messiah, that if they believed in him, that they would have eternal life. But other ones, others were still thinking currently and not believing. John Gill says the majority were against Christ, but a minority did believe. The literal-minded Jews were very incensed by this idea of eating Jesus' flesh, even though it was a metaphor. Why? Because it was unlawful for a Jew to eat any live flesh of animals, according to John Gill, much less the live flesh of a man. That's cannibalism. Oh, that's awful. Again, it's because they were carnal-minded. They didn't see the spiritual metaphor. We'll finish up here with verses 53 through 58. So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Notice that real or true. In other words, he's contrasting his flesh with the physical bread, and he's contrasting his blood with his real drink with the 
physical drink of wine or some other kind of drink. Verse 56, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, meaning he himself. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your fathers ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Now, all right, once again, to summarize, he's saying he's better than the manna that comes down from heaven. That's physical. He's spiritual. He uses uh, eating and drinking and feeding metaphors to, to basically mean put G Jesus in you. Become one with, you, with him. Because when you eat food and you drink wine, it goes inside the body and assimilates itself into the body and you can't separate it out anymore. That's a, a metaphor that really emphasizes the union of Christ with his believers. And in fact, he says in verse 56, my blood, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that person lives in me and I in him. If the believer lives in Jesus and Jesus lives in the believer, how much closer can you express the unity of Jesus with the believer? Now, this is something that Reformed theologians look at very rarely, at least I haven't ever seen any, the, the idea of union in Christ. It's everywhere. And if you do a, a lexicon search on the Internet or with, on your computer and just look at the word in or in him, I should say, or in Jesus or in God, and look at all the times you see that mutual inter, that the mutual use of the word in, Jesus in you and you in Jesus, or you in God and God in you, or you in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in you. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. And yet it's hardly ever emphasized our union with Christ because most Christians today, in my humble opinion, look at Jesus as somebody out there and they want to learn about Jesus. And so they study the Bible and they learn all kind of nice facts about Jesus, but they forget the fact that Jesus is living right in them via the means of the Holy Spirit. He has actually become one with them. He is the the believer's new man, his new creature, his new creation, consists of, shall I say, the seed of the Holy Spirit and uh, the uh, the egg of the human spirit. There's a new creation, and this new creation is so close. This union in the new creation is so close that the believer and Jesus will never ever be separated. Now Calvinists do talk a lot about how we'll never be separated from the love of God, and that's true, but we need to also emphasize that we are, by the very fact that we're never separated from God, that means that we are in union with him now and he's in union with us. Now this passage here, verses 53 through 58, has a lot of eating, eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood. And a lot of people say that refers to the communion. I don't think so. The NIV Study Bible agrees with me and says this cannot directly refer to the Lord's Supper. And for one reason, Jesus doesn't teach that partaking of the Lord's Supper makes one saved. In the discourse, it is faith that is emphasized. To show you that, let me read verses 6. I'm going to read you four verses that talk about that. John 6:35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And of course, belief is a synonym for having faith. John 6:40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him or has faith in him may have eternal life. Have faith in him, not partaking of the Lord's Supper. John 6:47. I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. This passage is about having faith in Jesus, not about taking the Lord's Supper. John 6:51. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread 
I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. There, there's no mention of faith, but Jesus says the bread that gives life is his flesh. The bread that I give for the life of the world, that's talking about his body on the cross. It's not talking about the bread in the communion. Adam Clark says this, It is absurd to say a Christian would go to hell if he hadn't partaken of the Lord's Supper. Of course it would be absurd to say that. Now let's mention this last day quotation again that Jesus says in verse 54. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. If you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you got eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I've mentioned that as we've gone through. This refers to the general resurrection at the end of time. The expression is found only in John in the New Testament. Now notice in verse 53 where Jesus says, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. This is in response to a question. The question in verse 52, how can we eat your flesh? Jesus doesn't give a mealy-mouthed answer to that. He, the question was, how is it possible to eat Jesus' flesh in verse 52? And he responds that it is indispensable to eat his flesh, as James Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. Let me read that question to you in verse 52. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, how is this possible? How can it be that he wants us to eat his flesh? And Jesus said, no, it's not only possible that you eat my flesh. You've got to eat my flesh if you want to see eternal life and be raised up on the last day. Now, this raised up on the last day, this is for any heretical preterist that might be out there, anybody that does not believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is the fourth time that that's repeated in this passage in John 6.39, in John 6.40, in 6.44, and in John 6.54. He says over and over and over again, I will raise him up on the last day, the one who believes in me and has eternal life. The resurrection of the dead is a rock-solid doctrine that is a fundamental portion of orthodox theology that you have to believe unless you don't want to be a heretic. Now, one last point will be finished with this passage. We'll look at verse 54. Jesus says, Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That shows that as soon as you partake of Jesus and you make him part of your life, you have eternal life at that point in the present, and the future I will raise him up on the last day. So eternal life starts as soon as you believe in Jesus, and it goes on forever. It's eternal from the point of your salvation to the future. It's not eternal backwards, of course, backwards in time because you didn't exist at some time and you weren't born again at some time. But going from the time that you believe and partake of Jesus to partake of his flesh, drink of his blood, from that time to the future, you will never, ever die. And folks, that is the good news of the gospel. And so we finished with John chapter 6, verses 25 through 58. We will, in the next audio, finish up John chapter 6 when we take up verses 60 through 71 and see some disciples stumbling at Jesus' hard words. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.